welcome with me the vicar who's not a Buddhist, Melvin Tinker. Sad to say there are some vicars who are Buddhists, but we won't go into that. Tender moment. Sorry, I'm not on there. Are we okay? It was a tender moment and one of the most significant moments in Asian history. It was a turning point which began with a look. It had been a long and tortuous road he'd traveled, one which was fraught with indecision and doubt to consider. But his mind was made up. Sure, there was still the cost to think about, and it was not the renunciation of his riches and status which concerned him. Being a Kshatriya prince, with all the riches and honor such a position entailed, meant nothing to him. No, it was the thought of his wife and his son which tormented him the most. They were his passion. And they were his delight. And it was here that the choice he had made cut deep. So much so that he promised himself that he would steal one last look before he left them forever. And that was when he slipped into the bedroom and where his dear wife and child of their love lay. He longed to take the slumbering infant to his arms for one last time sealing his love with a parting kiss. He yearned to take his wife in one last sweet embrace. But this was not to be. He stood in the shadows gazing at them and his heart was grieved. The pain of parting surged to the point of unbearable agony. Although his mind was resolute, nothing could prevent him from his quest. Nonetheless, tears flowed freely from his eyes. And finally, he suppressed his feelings. He tore himself away from the scene of sublime domesticity, and he walked into the darkness where his horse and his servants stood waiting at the gate. Do not leave now, Lord, cried a woman's voice in the darkness. In seven days, you will be ruler over four continents and 2,000 islands. This is no time to leave. Well, do I know it, the young prince replied without stopping. But it is not sovereignty I desire. I will become a Buddha and make all the world shout for joy. And so it was that Siddhartha Gautama, later to be known as the Buddha or Awakened One, rode into the night and into history 500 years or so before the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the story of Gautama is crucial for providing us with the kind of insight we need as to how the East as a whole, which includes Hinduism, and Buddhism in particular, perceives the human predicament and proffers a solution. You see, Gautama was brought up the son of a Raja of the Sakya tribe in Nepal. And he led a life which was both privileged and pampered. His father ensured that he was surrounded with every conceivable pleasure and shielded from every kind of sorrow. Such that, as one account puts it, that no trouble should come nigh to him 
he should not know that there was evil in the world. However, three things happened which was to shatter the cocoon of naivety that his father had carefully weaved around his son. The first was the deep experience which he began to grow upon discovering that his own mother died while giving birth to him. The second experience came when he was about nine years old, and young Siddhartha was taken out to watch the annual Sakya plowing festival, where his father made the first ceremonial cut into the ground. But instead of basking in his father's regal splendor, he was horrified to see that as the ground was gashed open, insects were thrown from their habitats. Worms were cut into pieces and birds descended to eat the squirming creatures on the broken soil. The third experience came some years later, when the Shatraya prince, now fully grown, set out to see the world in his jewel-bedecked chariot. And it was along a route that was carefully chosen and decorated by his father, which would only show, he said, the beauty of life. However, along the way, he encountered first an old man, then a sick man, and finally a dead man. On seeing the corpse, Siddhartha is said to have asked, is this the only dead man, or does the world contain other instances? All over the world it is the same, replied his charioteer. He who begins life must end it. There is no escape from death. Oh, worldly men, exclaimed Siddhartha, as if speaking to his father and everyone else in the court. Everyone else, he felt, was caught up in, in life's distractions. How fatal is your delusion? Inevitably, your body will crumble to dust, yet carelessly, unheedingly, you live on. And from then on, According to tradition, his son he left behind became Raula, the fetter. And Siddhartha became the stream enterer, whose goal was to become the Tathagata, the one who is simply gone. Now it was those experiences, those life experiences, which were to be formative in, in shaping Siddhartha's understanding of the heart of the human predicament which is suffering or anguish. In fact, his response in, in leaving his family is suggestive of what he came to see as the solution, namely detachment. But as we shall see in a moment, while there were many other ascetics at the time that pursued the way of detachment, as if you like uh, the means of salvation, Siddhartha gave his understanding a particular form. Now, it was something like six years later, after leaving his family, that Siddhartha Gautama experienced his breakthrough. He came to realize that in his present weakened physical and mental state, he was in no condition to receive any revelation. And so he modified his rule and regained a measure of physical strength and mental lucidity. And as he was meditating under the bow tree in Bodhgaya, for 40 days and 40 nights, it happened. The seeker became the 
the Buddha, the awakened one. Now, sometimes um, this term is referred to as the enlightened one, but that's not terribly accurate. Because the contrast he was making is between all other men who are asleep and a Buddha who is now awakened, awakened to reality. So what was the reality to which he was awakened? Well, it was that suffering was the dominant element of human life. And this leads on to the next obvious question. What is the cause of suffering? And the Buddha saw that the origin lay in desire. That grasping which held the self to the will of insubstantial things. And it followed that if desire itself could be eliminated, then release from suffering would be possible. And the human quest achieved. At the heart of the doctrine of the lotus is the elimination of desire. Well, having had the awakening, the Buddha gathered to himself five other uh, ascetics who became his disciples. And then he delivered his first sermon, setting in motion the wheel of Dharma. And this contained the four noble or Aryan truths. The sermon began by highlighting the two ways, the two false ways which do not work. There is, he said, the way of self-indulgence. Food, alcohol, sex, and so on. And these, the Buddha said, cause as many problems as they resolve. But then there is the way of self-denial. Through practices such as fasting, solitude, and sleep deprivation. But in contrast to these two false ways, Gautama claimed to have realized the middle path. And underlying the middle path are the four noble truths. First truth is dukkha, anguish. Birth, age, and death are all anguish, as is the mental states many people experience. And this, he says, is the underlying truth which defines human experience. Then there is samudaya, Cravings or desire. This, said the Buddha, is the cause of dukkha. The craving of the experiences of the senses. And it is said that this desire belongs to the unreal self. Which generates suffering because it is impermanent and changeable. Seeking objects which belong to the world of illusion. And so are bound to end in disappointment and disillusionment. And it is this affirming of the lower self and clinging to it which is deemed to be evil. The third noble truth is naroda or containment. And here you have the complete abandonment and rejection of desire. Even the desire to reject desire. But finally there is marga, the right track. And this is the eightfold path or eight elements which make up the right track consisting of the right. Right understanding, apprehending the four noble truths, right aspiration, renouncing desire, right speech, abstaining from slander, lies and foolish talk, 
Right living, forbidding, living by a trade which causes harm to other people. Right livelihood, begging for food. And then there is the right effort, the suppressing of evil mental states and bringing about good mental states. Right mindfulness, to be aware that the body is the body, the mind is the mind, and feelings are feelings, and so on. Then there is right concentration, samadhi, entering into the fourfold way of meditation, which opens the practitioner when he has overcome the five hindrances of sense desires, ill will, sloth, restlessness, and doubt. In her book, Three Ways of Asian Wisdom, Nancy Wilson Ross describes the process in this way. First, she says, you must see clearly what is wrong. Then you must decide to be cured. Then you must act and speak so as to aim at being cured. Your livelihood must not interfere with your therapy. And your therapy must go steadily forward, as fast as possible, but not too fast. And you must think about it constantly. And you learn to contemplate she says, with a deep mind. So in summary, the four noble truths establish the problem, affliction. The second noble truth points to its cause, which is craving or attachment. The third noble truth highlights the way to overcome suffering by containment, the extinguishing of desires. And the fourth noble truth describes the eightfold path leading to the end of desire and therefore suffering. And this final state, or perhaps we should describe it as a non-state, is nirvana. That is extinction. That is what is called the deathless lake. And here, what is extinguished is not just suffering. It's not just desire. It's not just attachment. It is the individual who desires. Now, some Buddhists claim that it is significant that at the moment the Buddha achieved his awakening under the bow tree, he did not cry, I am liberated, but it is liberated. He transcended the self to become the non-self. As the British philosopher of comparative religion, Ninian Smart, bluntly puts it, there is nirvana but no person who enters it. Now, in this complete liberation into nirvana that has occupied the attention of many Western adherents, there is also what early Buddhists called the uh, nibbutta. Uh, this is the uh, state of coolness. Now, when we talk about coolness, we're not talking about 21st century American coolness like Johnny Depp, you know, that's not cool. What, what we're talking about here is a state of complete calm, unperturbed by the concerns of the world, free from the lower bases of desire. And it is the Nabuta man or woman who continues to remain in the world to teach the middle way, as did the Buddha from his awakening unto around the age of 80. Now, to try and understand how anyone can attain nirvana, it's vital to appreciate the Buddhist understanding of the ultimate nature of reality, 
and the nature of human beings in relation to that reality. Now, in accord with mainline Hinduism, Buddhism is an, in its ancient form is what is called monistic, it's monism. And this is the worldview that all reality is ultimately one. And what we experience is diversity and difference. The stool is different to a table, the cat is different to a dog, and so on. Belong to the realm of illusion, or maya. And maya, at root meaning, is from a Sanskrit word meaning to measure or to, to classify. So this is the world of scientific phenomena. And this, says the Buddha, is illusion. It's a shadow world where individuality and diversity are thought to be real, but are not. So being caught up in mire is like being caught up in a bad dream. The dream is painful, it's frightening, it's uncomfortable, but it's not real. So what is the solution to a bad dream? You wake up. And awakening is the true realization of reality. Now this, it is claimed, is what happened to Gautama under the bow tree. It is the awakening from the nightmare of reality into the reality of the one. But here's the question. If reality is ultimately one, then where does that leave our understanding of human beings? Now, it was at this point that Gautama departed radically from contemporary Hinduism. You see, Hinduism regarded as essential the existence of Atman, the real self. That's what Hindus believe. So whilst holding to the traditional monism and the veil of illusion in which we find ourselves, Gautama said that all apparent existence belonged to what he called anika, that which is impermanent and, uh, and changing. But such a realm, he said, is really anatta, without soul. There is no place for a permanent center of human consciousness. It doesn't exist. And so while a human being might appear to be a unity, as we would say, body, mind, and soul, that is all it is. It's an appearance. It's, a, it's, 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 it's not re a real entity. Now, the Buddhist teaching is that this apparent existence is due to a coalescence of five khandhas, or aggregates. Now, it's not all that easy to grasp how these khandhas might be conceived. One suggestion is that they might be thought of as resembling centers of tension in a diffused field of magnetic energy. You, you've seen those sort of pictures. And the five khandhas are as follows. First, there is rupa. Uh, this is a Sanskrit term meaning shape or form and refers to all that presents itself to us as the visible properties of apparent existence. Then there is vedana, the feeling or the sensation which arises as we make contact with this apparent world. Thirdly, there is sana. The perception of the differences between the apparent phenomena. A table is a table, a chair is a chair. But then there is Sankara. 
Now, this is a term which even the experts in Buddhism find it very difficult to define. Uh, Maybe the best word we can come up with uh, in English would be synthesis. The ability to bring together the different aspects of experience as a whole, like conceptual thinking. But then there is vinanya, and this is consciousness. Better still, perhaps we should think of it as self-awareness, the ability to engage in inner reflection, to think about oneself. Now we can begin to perhaps grasp in some way what is claimed to happen at nirvana. There is an awakening to the state of the first such that the illusion of existence comes to an end. And that is how the bondage to the wheel of existence, samsara, is eventually broken. Question is, is it possible for these different aggregates, which seem to make up an individual, come together again? And it's here that Buddhism maintains the ancient doctrine, the Hindu doctrine of karma. Now, this is the idea of cause and effect, the relation of deed and retribution. However, this is not the idea, as in Hinduism, that there's an I who dies and is reborn or reincarnated. According to some Hindus, it can happen 35,000 times. Because in Buddhism, remember, the I is denied. So there's no I who dies or is reborn. Rather, what happens is that these Candors, these aggregates, give up their temporary cohesion at death. They they sort of, as it were, disperse. And to use Eastern language, and uh, here's a quote from um, Bishop Stephen Neal, who was uh, uh, one of the world uh, experts on world religions, uh, was a missionary in India, and he was a tutor at the college I attended in Oxford. He said this, that what happens is that there is a, a wonder in separateness through the vast abyss of nothingness, the endless universe. If in the infinite expanse of time they do come together again, the same experience of apparent existence will be born. The main thrust of this doctrine is that it is so hard to escape from illusion, maya, and will hardly occur within the span of one single period of time. Awakening is more likely to come only as a result of seeking through innumerable series of existences, a striving without ceasing. Well, that sounds pretty miserable to me, but there we are. Now, from what we've seen so far in the teaching of the Buddha, there's no room for the self. Sorry, folks, you don't exist. But is there room for God? Well, there does seem to be an allowance for something which has a state of permanence amidst the flux of what is perceived to be existence. And this is illustrated by this passage taken from one of these sermons attributed to the Buddha, where he says, there is monks, an unborn, not become, not made, uncompounded, and were it not monks for this unborn, not become, not made, uncompounded, no escape could be shown here for what is born has become not become, not made, uncompounded. Therefore, an escape can be shown for what is born, has become, is made, is uncompounded. Now, that's making you going to rush and read this stuff straight away, isn't it? 
Hinduism, after which Buddhism was basically a reform movement, does allow for a supreme being, Brahman. But even this is not how Christians would traditionally conceive of God. You see, Brahman is essentially impersonal. It's some kind of impersonal, stable something which Buddha considers to be possible. But the classical form of Buddhism, known as Theravada Buddhism, uh, the southern school, uh, is essentially atheistic. For them, there is no God. There's no Brahman. The other form of Buddhism, which is more widespread, Mahayana Buddhism, uh, which is widespread particularly in Japan and Nepal, does allow for it. The term Mahayana means the great vehicle, uh, contrast to the small vehicle, which they refer to the Theravada Buddhists. Now here is, there is this reappearance of the Hindu concept of avatars or descents of this ultimate reality or Brahman. Now by and large, these avatars, the descent, these appearances are essentially uh, mostly mythical. But many of the Mahayana tradition would consider Buddha to be an avatar. Then there's also the Bodhisattva, which following the example of Gautama, attains perfection but remains on earth to spread the good news of the middle way. Now, if there's any form of Buddhism you've come into contact with or have heard about, I guess it is Zen Buddhism. And uh, this uh, made its way into uh, the culture in San Francisco through the Beats. Some of you will be old enough to remember the Beats. And uh, particularly uh, Jack uh, Kerouac in his uh, book, The Dharma Bums. And this appears to be a disguised uh, history of his own entry into uh, Buddhism through Gary Snyder, who he spent two years uh, under a Zen Buddhist master in Japan. But I guess it's through the ex-Anglican counselor, Alan Watts, uh, when things really began to get going in the United States in the early 1950s. In fact, Watts was once referred to as the Norman Vincent Peale of Zen Buddhism. Now, Zen had a natural appeal to the easy, laid-back-going lifestyle of the, of, the, uh, of the West Coast. And this is captured by Lin Chi. In Buddhism, there's no place for using effort. Just be ordinary and nothing special. Eat your food, move your bowels, pass water, and when you're tired, go and lie down. All very cool and, yeah. See why it was appealing. What's the purpose? Well, the purpose of Zen Buddhism is to penetrate reality. And the method by which this penetration occurs is meditation. And this is when all earthly holds, including Dharma and Nirvana itself, are let go, and there's nothing left but the I and the it, until eventually they become identical. As the Badagosa said of his state of enlightenment, I am a nowhere, a somewhatness for anyone. And it's most intriguing, Zen is a world of paradox. It's the absurd, it's the irrational. And that's deliberate because what it's trying to do is to draw the mind away from rationality, which gets in between uh, the world and our mind. And so in our experience, we know that Two hands uh, 
clapping, what they sound like. But in Zen Buddhism, we're invited to ponder the sound of one hand clapping. Here's an example of Zen dialogue. Am I right when I have no idea, asked the inquirer? Throw away that idea of yours, replied the master. What idea, asked the pupil in perplexity. You are free, of course, to carry about that useless idea of no idea. Now, according to Zen, it is the intellect which divides and orders and categorizes and measures and defines and describes. But it asks, what might it be if we could apprehend all things at once and simultaneously? Well, this is illumination when thought ceases and something else takes its place. Now, this experience is called satori, the condition of consciousness whereby the pendulum of opposites have come to rest when both sides of the coin are equally valued and immediately perceived. And satori can only come about when thought ceases. How do you attain it? Through meditation. Now, we tend to view meditation about thinking about things, a passage of scripture, a hymn. That's a Western mindset. In the East, it is the exact opposite. Meditation means, is the means of stopping thought. Thinking, as we've seen, according to Zen, is a hindrance with its propensity to classify and to analyze, keeping us trapped in the, 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 the world of Maya illusion. No, what meditation does is to Help us so we, we do not have a goal. In fact, meditation is the goal. Now, if we are bound to the wheel of samsara, then meditation enables us not to fly off in the periphery of the wheel, but to get closer and closer to the center. And centering is absolutely vital to meditation. One Christian writer himself, a former Zen Buddhist, puts it like this. He said that, Think about the center of the wheel of a car or a bike. What is it? It is the axle. What is at the center of the axle? It is a point. And what is a point? It is nothing. Even in physical reality, in the center of the center, in between the molecules and the atoms and the gluons and the electrons and the protons, is nothing. And this nothing does not turn with the wheel. But nothing is free from turning. And when you reach this absolute nothing through your meditation, you realize the absolute everything. You have achieved absolute freedom. You're fully enlightened. You become everything when you become nothing. And one of the commonest uh, components, of course, of meditation is the mantra. And that involves repeating words which have a meaning. You repeat them aloud, and then eventually you repeat them internally. And through this repetition, there's a vibration. And this transcends their meaning. And they become finer and finer until you're vibrating along with every atom in the universe. And all physical matter vibrates as electrons change orbits. And when you realize that vibration, you unite yourself with all physical matter in the cosmos, and you become one with everything. There are a variety of mantras. When uh, the Beatles went to India to study under the Maharishi Yogi, a Hindu, not a Buddhist, he gave each one of the Beatles their own special mantra. 
And if you listen to the uh, Let It Be album, there you'll find John Lennon using it in his song Across the Universe. And you listen to that and you see he's experienced a kind of transcendent state. The most common mantra, which is on that track, is the repetition of the word Om. Now the whole text is not Om, it's just it's Om Mani Padme Hum, which literally means Hail to the jewel in the lotus. Now, the lotus blossoms grow in the mud under the water and propagates by shoots. And uh, certain species have no seeds with a long stem and emerge through the surface of the water. And if you see a statue of Buddha, you look at the base and there you will see little lotus blossom petals. It's the lotus throne. And he has a lotus feet. Now, this is a very important image for the Buddhists. Because the lotus blossom has hundreds of petals. And if you separate the petals and come into the center of the lotus blossom, what do you find? Nothing. That is the jewel in the lotus. Okay, let me just try and summarize what we've been looking at. Buddhism belongs to the Eastern world of monism. All is one. The heart of the human predicament is suffering. The way of salvation is detachment. The Four Noble Truths set out the way of the Eightfold Path. So using medical terminology, we may think of them as disease, which is suffering, diagnosis, desire, prescription, containment, and treatment, the middle way. Theravada Buddhism is agnostic at best and probably atheistic. And the end of the Eightfold Path is Nirvana, the great deathless lake and the extinction of the individual. And the main technique employed to achieve this state or non-state is meditation. Now, I follow the principle that uh, contrast is the mother of clarity. And so next week, what I'm going to do is to compare Buddhism and Christianity, as well as give you criteria of deciding between all different worldviews, as you can see what is true and what isn't. And then you're going to discover why I am a Christian. I am not a Buddhist. But let me give you a few points for home. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in God, with God in the beginning. And all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that has been made. John 1. Now, the biblical view of God in creation is very, very different from that of Buddhism. God is personal and relational. The world is real, not a dream. God can be spoken of to in prayer, and he speaks to us through his word. So why not take this week to delight in the God who is more like a divine family and think about the creation and the people we are to care for, made in his image. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from the time that my, my mother conceived me. Psalm 51. Now the Bible views suffering and affliction as a result of the fall, Genesis 3. It's not the fundamental problem of human existence. The fundamental problem is sin. Original and actual. Here's the question. How seriously do we take sin as primarily something which offends our God? 
And let me ask, what part does repentance, not remorse, repentance, have in our walk with the Lord? Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Salvation is not by self-effort, leading to this extinguishing of the self in the deathless lake. No. Salvation is a free gift of God. And it is solely by grace whereby we're made alive, we're united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, nothing ages more quickly than gratitude. Take the time to ponder the wonder and the cost of our salvation. Shall we pray? Our dear Lord, we thank you for so great a salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for making us in your image. We thank you for this world which is so good and yet so distorted. And we pray, Lord God, that in your kindness and in your love, that this week we will ponder afresh how great thou art and, Lord, live out our lives in the light of it. For Jesus' sake, amen.